Equipping today's college students to make their four years count for eternity. This is the Campus Outreach Podcast. So we got, we got this Ephesians passage, and, and it's so different than the explanation that Joey gave you Saturday, right? It's so different than the, the image that he, he painted. And so you've got to ask the question, how did we get here? What in the world happened? How do we go from what Joey described to the statement of all of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature? I thought I was created in the image of God and now you're saying I have a sinful nature. How do we get here? So that's what we're, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to rewind. We're going to look at Genesis 3 like DeCorey read for us um, and, and we're going to kind of dissect what happened. Um, so by the end of this talk, my hope would be that you guys would come to God naked. Uh, I saw like 20 heads shoot up right there. We really don't like that word. Um, but that would be it. That, would be, that really would be my desire, that you would be able to come to God naked and unashamed. Um, to, to give like a complete guide into sin, it's just we couldn't do that in a whole night. This, this passage is so thick. It's so amazing. Um, but we're going we're gonna to skip a little bit. What we're going to be skipping maybe is a little bit of the nature of sin. So I'm going to give you just like a quick, really quick overview of what happens. So we're not going to look, or yeah, we are not going to look at like how Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Um, although we could, that's like a great talk and a great conversation. Um, instead, we're going to look more about like what happened after he did. Um, but let's look at that overview. So Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They're sinless and happy, right? Like Joey described two days ago. So, Satan, in the form of a snake, comes, as we read, onto the scene. And he approaches Adam and Eve and strikes up a conversation with Eve, right? And he asks her some good questions. She begins to doubt, just like the goodness of God. And decides that, kind of in that moment, that she knows better than God. And so she eats the fruit. And so does Adam. The one thing that God said that she and Adam could not do in this massive garden of yeses, he gave one no. And they decide to, to go with the one no. So what we're going to look at is what happened immediately after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit. We're going to look at how sin changed humanity who had originally been created, been created in the image of God. So how? So if you're a note-taker, and you throw all my note-takers out there, go to the next slide. These will be our three main points. Our response to sin, the results of our sin, and God's response to our sin. Don't worry, you're going to see them written. You don't have to write all three of those. Yeah, those are good. Um, so just, just this first one. Our, our response to sin. I think... We're going we're gonna to go to verse 7 and see just our first response here. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed big leaves together and made themselves one cause. I would say the first response you see it up here to sin that we see in this passage is shame. Immediately, that's what Adam and Eve feel. You see that? Their, their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. And so immediately they had to do something about that. They were filled with shame. You know that moment when you're caught and you know it and you get that feeling in your stomach? Imagine that for, for Adam and Eve. But there's a difference between guilt and shame. 
and, and some of you may have heard this, but the guilt basically just happens when you do something wrong. Shame takes it and says, it's not, it's not that I did something wrong, it's that I am wrong. It's not that I did something bad, but I am bad. That's what shame says. It makes it personal, it makes it about you. So in order to deal with your guilt, we've got to work through this shame thing. We've got to work through shame. And there's tons of ways or strategies, kind of, if I can use that word, there's tons of strategies that we use to try to attempt to cover our own shame. Let me give you two examples. These are kind of random, but, but I think that'll make it more understandable. We're going to use the example of pity first. So the idea is like, I, I would love to get some pity from my friends in a way that will actually cover my own shame. So in the name of being vulnerable, which I, I think vulnerability is a great thing. Vulnerability is an awesome thing. But in the name of being vulnerable sometimes, we can cross into a strategy for covering up our shame. And it goes a little bit like this. You're, you're stressed. You had a lot of stress in your life because of grades, right? Is that relatable? I, you, you just got done with that. You had a lot of stress in your life. Something you know like, and I shouldn't feel stressful. Like stress is probably not a good thing for me. Um, but instead of like dealing with that stress, what we do is, is we start to go tell everyone about our stress in the name of vulnerability. We're telling everyone a little bit, because honestly, I think there's a little bit of us that says, I don't want to feel this shame anymore, so I'm hoping if I tell my friends, they'll tell me I'm not wrong. They'll say, you know, like, you're, you're not wrong for feeling this. It's not your fault. And maybe that'll take some of our shame away if they feel kind of some pity for us. The problem is, pity isn't actually covering our shame. It's not working. Why? Because one person's opinion of you doesn't really change. It doesn't really take away your shame. It's not big enough. Because they, one person doesn't have the power to take away your shame. So the shame never really resolves or dissolves. So that's one way. And it's just a random example. But another one, there's another one maybe some other people relate to, and it's this idea of vows. V-O-W-S, vows. Basically saying, I'm going to commit to never do this again, right? So we feel shame. We feel some really big shame in our life. And, and maybe you've been here. Maybe, maybe you've been in things like, like sexual sin. Can I go there? I'm not going to stay there very long. But maybe it's something like sexual sin. And you just, in, that, in this situation, you sin. You're immediately filled with shame. And so you tell yourself, I'm done with that. I'm never doing that again. And it gives you a feeling that, the sh- that, that shame is who I used to be, right? That's like the old version of myself. And, and there's like a commitment, but now I'm different. I'm a different person. But are you? Does that actually work? Like when you make these vows and your experience, have they worked? Or do you inevitably return back to it? I'm not trying to like destroy you right now, but... My point is, both strategies, what they do is they're, they're an attempt to take back into our control like, a, like our own way of getting rid of shame. We want to take that back into our control. And so we're going to try to convince the world that it's not my fault, or we're going to try to like convince ourselves that that's who I used to be, but I no longer am. But the thing is, what you're doing is you're trying to solve shame. 
And shame isn't the real problem. The real problem is guilt. It just pacifies for the moment this feeling of shame, sort of. So we see Adam and Eve do that, right? We see them. They, they, they feel the shame, and so what do they do? They go get some, some fig leaves, and they cover themselves up. And it works for a brief moment until they hear God coming. And suddenly they're like, oh, man, that really didn't work. You know, like immediately they, they hear him coming and they go hide. So it obviously, obviously shows, like, we think our little strategy for covering our own shame is going to work until we're kind of exposed again. And it's like, oh, man, I, that, didn't, that didn't work at all. So I think, I think that's what we do with, with this shame stuff is we're just, we're just trying to take into control a way to try to pacify our own shame. And Adam and Eve did the same thing. That's what they did in the garden. They also felt fear. That's the second response I think we have in the, in, in the face of, of sin. So we see that with Adam and Eve, right? In verses 8 through 10. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's what we do. We hide. But is it really hiding when God can see us? Is that is that even is that even successful? It's kind of like like a a child, you know, classic like who covers his eyes and like I can't see you, you can't see me. Deal. The problem is we've got an all-seeing God, all-knowing God, who's sitting there watching at Adam and Eve as they're hiding. So it's it's not really Adam and Eve like they're not hiding from God; they're kind of just hiding from themselves. So what are they afraid of? Let's read it again. We're going to read it a little bit slower because I actually believe this is one of maybe if not maybe the saddest verse in the whole Bible. I really do believe that. I'm going to slow down this time as I read it. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And up to this point, if they had heard God walking in the garden, they were, previous to this, previous to their sin, like before their sin, they would have been like a little kid when their dad got home from a long trip or their mom got home. You know, they should have been running to God, excited to see God. And instead, we see them go, hi. What changed? What happened? Let's look, at, let's look at how God approaches them. Because there's a little bit of a question you could ask. Is like, is, did God change? You know what I'm saying? Like, in their sin, did suddenly God become different? Let's look at how he approached them. It said, the first thing I want to point out is that they heard the sound of the Lord God. In other words, they heard his voice. They heard him talking. They heard him coming. Why was God talking? I, I would like to suggest that maybe he's talking because he's kind of giving them a heads up. He's not a God that's trying to catch them in the middle of their sin and shame them. He's not trying to sneak up on them. He's talking. He's almost giving them a heads up saying, hey, I'm coming to you because he wants to prepare them for the confrontation that he's about to have with them. It's not a God that's, that, that, should be, that we should be afraid of. He's actually coming in a really kind way. Another way that we see is just is in there, we just hear how slow he's coming. Lord, we, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking 
in the garden. He's walking. He's not running at them in anger, right? They just broke the one rule. And the promise was that he was gonna, they were going to die. You would think that you would hear, like as soon as they sin, you, you think that God's going to come running at them in anger. And instead it just says like he's kind of talking and he's walking towards them. Why is that? Because I think that Exodus 34, 6 describes God as a God who's slow to anger. Here, here Moses' interaction with the Lord. The Lord passes before him and, and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, God, God only describes himself a few times in the Bible. Where he describes himself, and this is one of them. He says, I'm a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that right here in this picture in Genesis. God is walking to them. He's not running. He's not screaming. He's, he's giving them, he's coming towards them slowly. And he's coming to them in the cool of the day. Why does that matter? Because it's not like the heat of the day, right? When think about it, you're nervous, you're scared, all of this, you're sweating. Because it's hot, it's beating down on you. Like, that's not how he approaches them. He also doesn't come at night when things are more scary. He comes in the cool of the day. Seemingly, he comes in, like, the the calmest part of the day. Because this is the God that's approaching them in the middle of their sin. He's a God that comes, and he's slow to anger. And he's, he's kind, and he's moving towards them. So it's not God's demeanor that's changed. God hasn't changed. It was their guilt inside of them that caused them to see God differently than who He actually was. Their perception of Him has been tainted. They're projecting things onto Him that aren't true. Maybe they're starting to believe lies or they have all these questions and they're saying like, maybe, maybe, maybe this has changed things forever and there's no way we can get back to how we were before. Or maybe they're like, man, He's about to kill us. This is it. This is the end. And isn't that what we do with our sin? We start assuming things about God that He does not say about Himself. We project onto Him things that are not true of who He is. We're still feeling Adam and Eve. They're hiding. Right here in this passage is where we are right now. They're hiding. They're still feeling a lot of shame because their clothes are terrible and they're itchy. And they're and they're scared. And then we get to the third response, which is, is blaming. Verses 11 through 13. It says, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to, to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Y'all hear that? Both of them. Adam, not only does Adam blame Eve, but he also blames God. He says, you're the one who gave me her. She's the one who did it. And not only that, you're the one that gave me her. You made a real mistake. You gave me a woman. What an idiot. Terrible. He's blaming, right? And then, and then Eve, you know, she gets blamed. And so she looks over and says, it was a serpent. It wasn't me. That's what we do. And, and really what that is, I just, it's just a last ditch effort. To just, I don't know what to do with this shame. I don't know what to do with my fear. I don't know what to do with this sin. And so, I just, can I give it to someone else, right? 
It's just their last effort. But their shame, although their shame caused them to cover up and their fear caused them to hide, God still moves towards them in love. And that's so key. They're, they're trying to avoid the conversation, but he does get them to admit something that's so important. They, they both say this little phrase, and I ate. They admit it. Even though they're trying to blame shift, even though they're afraid of them, they do come face to face with the sin, with the problem. I ate. A guy named Bob Smart would call these, we call strategies that we use to cover up kind of shame and these things. You call them like foolish strategies. It's just efforts of covering up our own sin. And they're all rooted, they all have kind of the same problem with them though. And that's that they don't, they don't deal with the actual problem. Sin and guilt is the actual problem. And we cannot fix sin and guilt on our own. So these are our natural responses to sin, right? And we can relate to them. I feel shame. I feel fear. I want to blame other people. I want to blame other life circumstances. I want to, I want to shift it away from myself. I want to get control over the situation. So if those are the those are the three responses to sin. What about our three result? Or, yeah. What about our our responses? Those are our three responses. What about our result? Uh, yes, there you go. Our results of our sin. There it is. Susceptibility, relational carnage, cursed work, and death. Continue. That day, death be. Um, there's five huge consequences of sin. I'm gonna briefly. I'm really gonna fly over four of them. We're gonna. We're really gonna land a plane with one of them though. First one we see is susceptibility. Susceptibility. Big word. I had to look up what it meant. Um, let's see it. Verse 14. Says the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and she and you shall bruise his heel. For people who have heard this before, yes. Definitely, this is a foreshadowed in Christ. Absolutely, that's a, that, this is the first time where we're really seeing a picture of Jesus. He's saying there's a promise here that Jesus will come. But let's tame it down just to a more practical, just more obvious thing to get from this. Suddenly, man and woman can hurt. Pain's a real thing. It wasn't before this moment. Suddenly, humanity is weak and they're vulnerable. We're not perfectly protected any longer. Sin has caused the world to be painful, harmful, dangerous. And that's a real reality. And it wasn't true before sin. Suddenly, we're susceptible. Also, relationships are damaged. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Reality is they will never, from, from the point of sin, relationships would no longer ever satisfy us like they should, like we will desire for them to. Practically, we see that in, in giving birth. It's going to hurt like crazy. Sorry, Annalise. It's going to hurt a lot. And raising children is going to hurt. 
a lot. And your marriage, it's going to suffer. Women are going to, the wife is going to want to control her husband. The husband's going to want to dominate his wife. Both are going to fail to love perfectly. And what happens is both will seek to use the other. Friendships, family members, all of our relationships for the rest of human history are going to suffer. And we were meant to live in harmony, but now relationships are hard and they don't satisfy as much as satisfy us as much as we really wish they would. Y'all relate to that? How constantly let down are we by relationships? What about work? Verse 17. And, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Sweating hard. This is the description of work now. And there is there is fruit. It says it. Like there's going to be fruit in our work, but it's come with a lot of thorns. So when God created Adam, one of the first things he said, and we heard this um, already taught to us during orientation, but one of the first things he did for Adam is he gave him a job. Because we were made in the image of God, and God likes to create, and he wanted us to create as well. We're made in his image. We were meant to love work and to do work and to enjoy it. But now we're lazy because work is hard. Or we overwork because we're obsessed with more money or, or the identity, or like a little identity attached to work. We overwork. Either way, whether we're lazy or we we'll work, it leads to either purposelessness or burnout. Because work is cursed and it's really hard. And it was supposed to be a gift from God. That's the, the, the look. That's the third one. So now we got physical death. This would be little death part A. Physical death. So verse 19, it says it. You were, you, you were pain from the dust, and to dust you will return. We're all on our way back to dust. And y'all know this. Death ends every person's life. But that was not part of the original creation. Now, it was supposed to be that that day, that's the promise we saw in chapter 2, verse 17. God promised. He said, he said that like the, the moment you eat of the fruit, that you were going to die. They were supposed to die that day. But God tempers that with, with grace, and it doesn't happen because he has mercy. But something did die that day. God sacrifices an animal. This is actually the first death. He sacrifices an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But there is a death that happens that day. But the death of Adam and Eve, that, that was postponed. That didn't come right away. Physical death didn't come right away. But it is a result, and that's what happens now. But this is the one I really want to talk about would be just this this idea of another death, and that would be a, a spiritual death. Spiritual death happened in that very moment, and we would call that guilt. We've already, you know, in the beginning of this talk, we already worked through the feelings of, of sin, which is kind of our natural response. These are like the, these are the, the outside factors. 
And then we named four results of sin. The last one is where I want to camp out right here, this, this idea of guilt. Sin does not just make us feel shameful and scared. It doesn't just come with earthly consequences like, like death and hard relationships and work. Sin makes us guilty before a perfect God. Sin's most fundamental, like really, just at the heart of it all, the most fundamental issue with sin, or with, with sin for Adam and Eve, they immediately became liable to the judgment of God. They ate, is, is that, that uh, chapter 2, verse 17, says, For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's speaking, I think, it's speaking more there of a spiritual death. So what is that? What is guilt? At its most just simple terms, guilt is to be separated from God. Just simply put, and we could, we could dissect that even more. But guilt just means we are now separated from God. Isn't that why we feel shame and fear and want to blame? Internally, we experience that separation from God. This is their bad way of coping with that spiritual separation. And we do the same thing. So prior to sin, Adam and Eve, they had a perfect relationship with God. And then sin comes in and suddenly the whole thing's wrecked. And we, have, we experience that separation from His goodness. So what does that mean for us? There's a guy, Richard Phillips, right here. He said this, When Adam sinned, the entire human race was in him so that his guilt accrued to us all. Proves a fancy word. Don't get hung up on it. Just the idea here is: as soon as Adam sinned, suddenly all of humanity was guilty. You're born with it. Don't believe me? Look at Psalm 51:5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is now part of who we are. You're born with a nature that is sinful, that is broken. As Ephesians described it, that it's actually dead. You're born spiritually dead. So what does that sinful nature do? It produces fruit, right? In your heart, if your heart is dead, then, then what was, what's inside your heart is going to bring forth fruit. So yes, you, you sin externally because that's what's inside of who you are. James 1.14 kind of says that. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yes, like the world around you, all these things, there's temptations and all these things around us, but it happens because inside of you, in your heart, you are born with a nature that is sinful. There's, there's a guy, amazing man, Tim Keller, who just passed away, amazing preacher. He, he said this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever than we ever dared believe. And we're really, we're really, really broken. We're really sinful. If I could give you like a, an analogy that maybe will describe this. Is I've, got a, I've got a son. Who's, who's, I've got two sons, four-year-old and two-year-old. Carter has this weird thing. So this, this Christmas, Annalise and I decided it was a good idea to make him a mud kitchen. Anyone know what that is? No. Great, neither did I. Um, so basically, we made him a little fake kitchen out of pallet wood, and we put it out in our backyard, and we kind of like marked off the lines, and we said, here you go. 
go at it. You can tear the yard up. You can put some water in the little fake sink. You can make mud pies, everything in this thing. Y'all go at it. Y'all, this little section right here, this is yours. And y'all can do, use it however you want to make your little creations. And the boys were like, no way. We can do that? Like, and they got so excited. And so they, they're going out there, and they're, I'm just, man, so many hours they spent at that mud kitchen. But Carter keeps doing this funny, my two-year-old keeps doing this funny thing. He'll come in, he's got, I mean, his toes, like mud between his toes, you know? <laughs> like, he's, he's covered in dirt, he's got it, it's like, man, how'd you get it in your hair? Like, what were you doing out there? And he's covered in mud, and he comes in crying, looking at his hands. And he's, and he's saying, well, would you clean my hands? You know, and you're like... Look at the rest of you, dude. Like, why are you so worried about your hands? And then you literally, you know, you do it. You wash his hands and he goes right back out there and he comes back in later again crying about his hands. And it's just, you get like what's so silly in this. The dude's covered in, in, in mud. I almost said sin. He's covered in mud and he's worried about his hands. But that's what we do with sin. We see sin as just this small thing like our actions. And that's just a tiny part. Like you're, you're covered in it. Your own nature is sin. And yes, the fruit of your nature brings forth like dirty hands. Yes, that does happen. But in your heart, you are broken and sinful. Susceptibility, broken relationships, painful work, physical and spiritual death are all ways that sin has broken us and this world. So then we've got to ask the question, how does God respond to that? How did God respond to our sin? The third, first thing is a little bit scary. He punishes. We see that. They, they get expelled from the garden. Let's read about it in verse 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, unless he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The man's out. He's expelled. Sin has real ramifications. Things really did change for us once sin entered the world. If guilt is incurred, then there has to be, like someone has to pay the price for guilt. Or God's not a just God. Usually, though, in our, in our, kind of, in our experience, right, when, when we sin, when we make a mistake, when we do something bad, people tend to kind of like interact with that in two different ways. One way is like, just heap shame on you. How could you do that? No, you're, you're terrible, whatever. They boo you. Like, they shame you. Or, the other way, in my experience, tends to be like, they just kind of like act like it didn't happen, look the other way, because they don't want the awkwardness of being like, oh man, I saw that. Right? And so it's like, those are the two ways. It's either a lot of shame, or let me look the other way. But that's not what God does. God boldly asks a penetrating question of Eve. What in the world have you done? But he doesn't do that to keep shame on her. He does it to confront the guilt. And it actually does work. Even though she blames her like out the gate, she does say, I ate. And Adam does the same thing. I ate. Both of them actually own up to the, to the guilt. And this is important because God's moving toward them. He's addressing or he, he's dealing with the real problem. It's their sin. They think the sin is, the, the real problem is their shame. They think the real problem is the fear. That's our tendency. Like that, that's what we think the problem is. And God knows the real problem. The real problem is guilt. 
And so he shows them that in love. And there's, there's more than just this reason, but one clear reason is he, he throws them out of the garden. God physically shows us what, what has happened to us spiritually. You've now been separated. Your guilt has made you very different than who I am. And we can't be together. He doesn't do this out of anger. We already talked about that. But he does it to show them the extent of the problem. And punishments for sin, they would perpetually become reminders to humanity of the reality of sin in the world. This, is, this will go on forever. There's, we, have a, we, have a very, we are in a very sinful state. And we're in a, we have a deep need for someone to come to pay, pay the price for our debt. And so we have a God who's not afraid of punishment. You hear, hear me say that? He's not afraid of punishment. And yet, it is so tempered with grace. Death would come. But not immediately. Work is hard. But we still do it. Childbearing hurts, and yet at the end, one of the most great, greatest moments of your entire life is when your child is born. I've got to see it happen twice, and I'm excited to see it happen for the third time. These things, there's real ramifications, and yet it's all filled with grace. God does allow the results of sin to exist in this world as a means to show us the gravity of our sins. And our need for a Savior. But He does not leave us alone in the world. Check out Hosea 6 1. Can I put it on there? I'll read it for you. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. The same God who punishes us is the same God who restores and heals us. Who fixes us. So you've got to know that. You've got to know that sin is punished. It will be punished because God is just. And yet, there's a second response. And that is that He covers. Another word for that would be grace. So let's read verse 21. Kind of go back up to verse 21. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Once sin enters the world, there's no road back. God only offers a way forward. They don't go back to Eden. They don't go. They don't. God, they don't return to who they were before. God's offering a new way forward. He does not. He doesn't remove the thought of nakedness being shameful. He covers their shame with animal fur. And that's so significant because God is showing us the real way forward is through the sacrifice and death of another. Which is going to bring about the redemption of sinful people. God's plan is not for man to return to an Eden-like place. That is not his plan. But it's to clothe us, clothe us with his glory. Read 2 Corinthians 5. Four, right here. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be clothed further, or further clothed. God did not simply return humanity to an Adam and Eve-like state. That part of his plan is complete. Eden is done. 
God foreshadows by providing good clothes for Adam and Eve. And he, he foreshadows a day where he would fully redeem the brokenness of man. His goodness it is going to clothe us and we are not naked and afraid. We are not exposed. We are not ashamed because we know that we are deeply loved and covered by God himself. So our clothing screams to the universe. Literally, my physical clothing screams to the universe. My shame and my guilt is covered by a gracious God. In our shame, in our, in, in like, in our narrow vision, we're like, we're like Adam. We want to hide in the garden and act as if sin never happened. We're tempted with the thought that maybe if we wait it out, those bad feelings will go away. But God's not going to settle for such a small vision. His plan is forward. Attempting to cover your sin, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of finishing with this, attempting to cover your own sin with these foolish strategies of hiding or blaming, these things don't work. We have a God who moves towards us in love while we are naked. He covers our shame and he pays the debt for our sin through the death of his son. You are sinful. You are a sinner. As, as Tim Keller said, you're so much more sinful than you even know. The relationship that God wants with you is not one that tries to overlook or ignore your sin. It's a relationship where you come to him naked and unashamed. You come to him and allow him to cover you in his joyful, in a joyful relationship initiated by him. And we see that happen. That actually happens in this passage in an awesome way. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means to give life. God had just promised, I'm going to curse you, woman, with, with a curse that has to do with childbearing. And Adam responds with that curse by saying, you're a life giver. You hear their faith in Adam, and I believe in Eve as well, in both of them. You hear their faith that they have. They don't believe that the curse is, is, is where they're going to stay. And so he literally names her life giver. The whole incident shows that they've accepted their lot in a fallen world, but they held on to the positive side of it. Life would continue. In the end, Adam and Eve moved into a world where they were naked and they were not ashamed. They were sinful, but they did not hide or cover their own sin. They lived in a complete faith in the forgiveness and the covering of God for their sin. I've got some discussion questions for y'all in light of this, and then we'll wrap up tonight.